cliffcentral.com Should there be any limits on free speech? If there ought to be restrictions on speech, how do we determine where these should be placed? And more fundamentally, why should we value free speech in the first place? On today's episode, freedom versus censorship. This show is brought to you by the Friedrich Naumann Foundation for Freedom and hosted by Gwen Nguenya and Mark Oppenheimer. We're going to be talking about censorship, and I think it's important that we start talking about um, the corollary, which is free speech and why it's important. So I've got a couple of reasons why I think it's an important value. Um, one of the classic reasons is that if you're free to talk about ideas, um, you've got the ability to find out what's actually true. So if we think about um, Galileo, right? So Galileo makes this claim that the earth is not at the center of the universe, okay? And the scene is a heretical claim. The church says, how dare you say this? Um, and there's this sort of censorial idea of suppressing what he wants to say. Mm. Now, when you have that kind of environment, you shut down things that are actually true. It makes it very hard for scientists to discover new things mm. when there are taboos in the, in the marketplace. So that's one of the values. But there's... A couple of others that I think are worth considering for us today. One of them is this idea of tolerance. So I don't really care about protecting speech that's banal. You know, um, If I want to say the sky is blue, that doesn't really require any protection. But if I want to say something that's offensive, you know, if I want to, let's say it's the, the 50s, and I say, well, I see no problem with gay people getting married or you know, black and white people holding hands and kissing in public, those things would have been seen as incredibly offensive, right? Um, and so what you want is this value of tolerance, the idea that someone says, I don't like what you're saying. I find it, you know, uncomfortable, but I'm going to tolerate it, you know, and that it's important that we grant people this room for tolerance. And also we think that you want citizens to make up their minds. So Ronald uh, Dworkin has this idea that you cannot have true dignity if you've got this state censor that says, we don't trust you. Um, to read these books, view these things, discuss these ideas, because then you're like, you're acting like a child. You know, you're never getting the opportunity to really evaluate anything. So these are some of the good reasons why I think we should have, you know, free speech and these important values. But let's look at the other side of it. When are the times when you think we ought to restrict speech? Well, I mean, there are some obvious ones as highlighted by our constitution. I think you probably better place to speak on those um, than I am. But what I what I would want to highlight is, you know, obviously one of the ones that we always hear is, you know, free speech doesn't extend to the incitement of imminent violence, nor does it, you know, extend to hatred that's based on gender, ethnicity, religion, um, etc. And 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 I think that's the important part for me is the fact that it says and constitutes incitement to harm. So it's not just that, you know, hatred, you know, towards those criteria is not is not permitted, but that on top of that, it must also constitute incitement um, to harm. And I think it's quite important to discuss those concepts of incitement and, and imminence, um, particularly with regards to imminence. I've seen very interesting um, debate and conversation around whether sort of the modern day we find ourselves in and social media and technology doesn't change the way we should understand imminence. So I think in a more traditional sense, people might think that if you are standing in front of an angry mob of pitchforks, etc., and you, you know, speak ill of a certain designated group and you say, you know, we must, um, you know, harm these people or we must take action and burn their homes, etc., in front of an angry mob, there would definitely be um, an imminent call to, to action. But surely imminence is now 
brought much closer and is accelerated when you think of the fact that a, a simple tweet could connect you to millions who are also connected to that particular platform, whether it's through Facebook or any other medium. And therefore, it changes how perhaps we need to think of eminence. So in my mind, and perhaps you, you would agree, is that we need to maybe develop a much broader understanding of what eminence means, but we might want to narrow what incitement is. So we have to, we want to maybe be quite strict about what incitement is. And the reason you would want to do that is you also want to leave room for individual responsibility. At the end of the day, um, if I say something, but you act on it, there has to be room in some circumstances to say, well, actually, you're the, you're the party that's deserving of, of punishment um, because you're the one who's actually acted on that particular um, you know, motivation. And that's not enough to say that my words um, in particular also um, sh- you know, should be implicated in that. Well, I think you raise a couple of interesting points. Um, you're right that we, you know, the, the MSC test has sort of got to be context sensitive. Yeah. So we have to ask ourselves in every situation, was this uh, an imminent incitement to harm or an imminent incitement to violence being the sort of high threshold? Mm-hmm. Um, and you might think that in certain cases where, let's say, you're, co- you're coordinating um, a mob via your tweets, that there's something very imminent about it. Um, whereas if you're disseminating it in a situation where people are sitting, you know, at home behind their computers watching Facebook, uh, that there's no imminent danger of the violence occurring. On the incitement bit, so there's – my understanding of incitement is that it must involve a call to action. So if we think about incitement to harm uh, in our our hate speech test, right, Um, which doesn't require imminency, um, there must be some proposal that you're calling for. Um, that you're saying this other group of people should be harmed and you're speaking to third parties to call upon them to go and act on them. Um, I think that there's dual liability there. So mm-hmm. when those people go out and smash shop windows um, or you know, act in some sort of harmful manner, deprive people of their rights, um, they ought to be held liable you know, in sort of criminal law and civil law. Um, but the idea with the hate speech legislation or you know, mm-hmm. um, regulation is that the person calling for it as well must be held liable. Yeah. Um, but I mean, you want to make yeah. sure that all those all those portions of the test are kind of met properly. You know? yeah. um, and what's interesting is we've got this hate speech bill um, that Parliament is considering. Um, and what that will do is rejigger what's in that test quite dramatically. So we won't be talking about incitement of women and violence um, or the sort of only there's there's only as you point out four different categories of people that get this elevated protection. Yeah. Um, what the hate speech bill does is it extends it to 17 different categories, including um, occupation and profession, and it doesn't talk about harm. It talks about insult and ridicule. So if you want to make fun of lawyers and politicians, um, you can wind up you know having a criminal penalty. And what the act does it makes it a very severe criminal penalty of three years for your first offence and ten for your second. So mm-hmm. let's say you want to poke fun at. Uh, you know, um, President Zuma for his affiliations with the Guptas or um, Blade because you don't think he's a good minister, you know, you could be placing yourself in criminal jeopardy. And that's yeah. quite frightening. Exactly. I, I think this conversation around, um, you know, imminence to violence or inciting violence and, and now moving into um, the provisions in the hate speech bill perhaps provide quite a nice segue for us to talk about um, quite, you know, a topic that I think is raised often and that is of words um, as deeds, you know, so words being violent and whether or not mm. um, that's something that's possible. I mean, of course, my own opinions of the matter is that it's quite problematic the moment that we view words as deeds and it touches to one of the se- essential reasons why free speech is worthy of protection in order for us to interrogate truths or, or falsehoods, I suppose. And the, the fact that, you know, it's difficult to do that if 
especially if you are talking in a political or government sense, if you're going to view critique of a particular presidency or president or an institution, and if that critique would be to view the same as perhaps an assassination on the president, mm. the force of words and the force of actions are very different processes. If I'm able to persuade an audience through the force of my words that this particular government or institution is not one that's worthwhile to have, and in that way destabilize um, a country or something, but that's still through a process of, of persuasion, whereas obviously an assassination would be to leave out the option of persuasion. You know, you now have removed um, that particular threat. So I think it's quite important to talk about how, I mean, because I think words can be forceful. I think that's not a point that we should minimize. But the mm. fact that the process of the force of words works very differently to the force of, of actions or deeds. And we might think that words can be hurtful. They can cause emotional upset, mm. but that they're often going to fall short of being actually harmful. You know, the, the words are not going to harm your physical well-being, you know. Um, so, I mean, this is also one of the reasons why the Constitution uses this idea of, it doesn't say, did the words harm you? It says, did they incite others to do, you know, actions on you? Yeah. Um, real harm. But that would be obviously a, a narrow reading of harm because, you know, some would argue that harm is not just physical harm, it extends to other types of harm. And especially if we look at our constitution, if they, it recognizes concepts such as dignity, it must mm. allow room for harm that is not purely physical. So this is interesting. So you might think about, let's say, reputational harm. So, um, again, with the incitement, you've got to be calling on others to interfere with people's reputational harm. So I say, um, we should run a smear campaign against Gwen. Um, you might think that that's an incitement to harm. Um, mm. But I think it is important that we get the correct, correct calibration about harm. It yeah, might yeah. not just be, as you say, physical harm or economic harm. Um, it might be deprivations of rights, and you might want to include things like dignity and reputation. Um, it's a very interesting area in our law, and I think it's something that's worth considering from a philosophical level as well, is where do we want to set that bracket? Because yeah. we don't want to set it something too low as, you know, mere emotional hurt. Because people are hurt by a range of things, you know, um, often that are innocuous or ununderstandable by, by others. We say, I'm surprised that you're, you know, so offended by this. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it also might be interesting to, to think about whether there's any room for, um, considering context in that concept of harm. Because, I mean, of course, you're saying that incitement to harm has to be an actual proposal or a call. Whereas I'm thinking, you know, if you, if you say something in a context where there's really quite a heated, um, environment, you know, for example, if there was had been a call to action, perhaps by somebody else, and there mm. was now a tense atmosphere, although you may now not make a similar call, you might your words might then add to an adverse environment for a particular group. So you would almost articulate what you have to say with the forethought, or, or any reasonable person have the knowledge that what you're saying would, you know, obviously contribute to to any kind of incitement that might follow. Yeah, so I mean, we want to think about if, you're, if we're talk, talking about is something like criminal liability, whether you want to hold people liable for negligent statements that they make. So you can imagine someone yeah. that's just you know um, foolishly saying things without you know true awareness of the context, um, versus someone who's sort of advocating. So you know, if you think about that first portion of that constitutional test, it's this advocacy of hatred on one of these grounds. You know, implies mm. some deep sense of intent um, that they are trying to incite harm against the vulnerable group. Um, so we've got to be we, – if we care about free speech as a strong value, um, mm. you know, we don't want to set the bar too low when we restrict speech. But this mm. is this interesting tension. Um, and I think we're finding at the moment in South Africa that there are these escalating tensions, you know, on, on race and gender. If we think about, yeah. you know, a men are trash campaign, um, you know, um, 
that you might sort of be creating a climate where people are much more likely to act out. Yeah. And so you might think that creates greater responsibility on speakers about what they say, um, given that it could erupt in actual violence or actual harm. And, and certainly, I mean, aside from the hate speech bill, other pieces of legislation have been introduced specifically to, you know, protect people. It's it mostly centers around this idea that it might cause harm. And talking about the Film and Publications Board Amendment Bill, the mm. same with the Cyber, um, you know, Cyber Crimes Bill. Um, you know, so I think there's definitely a, an importance there to highlight around harm, but also maybe something we haven't touched on and can move to is a sense of responsibility. To what extent is it, you know, incumbent on the listener to say, well, you know, or to take measures in order to prevent themselves from being in a situation where they might be offended? Um, and I think this speaks to, you know, you know, whether it's um, the concept of, of trigger warnings, but of course this, this assumes in situations, for example, talks or in viewing content that you you might you, you might find offensive. And I think there's probably not enough discussion about that as well as taking, you know, the owner should be on some level where it is possible to a great extent to the listener as well to choose. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mentioned this listener point and also just want to apply to instances where on campuses and I suppose those have been maybe the more high profile um, instances, but certainly elsewhere is that, you know, limitations or, you know, infringements on free speech have often centered on the speaker so that his rights were violated. But I think equally important are the rights of people, well, not to listen, as I was mentioning, to remove themselves where they can, but also to hear something should they should they want to. And I think any conception of freedom of expression has to take into account um, the listener as well. So it's not only the speaker you know, rights or perhaps the body that's providing the platform, because I think those are the two areas that are usually looked at. It's usually, you know, argued, you know, ex speaker doesn't have a right to a platform and so therefore can be deplatformed, and also that his rights are not therefore violated because it's just that one particular area where they cannot speak. They are free to speak elsewhere, just not at this venue. But I think in that analysis, what's left out is the right of those who may have wanted to listen. And I think, I mean, when we invited Fleming Rose, um, and by we, I mean the Institute of Race Relations, one of the key points that he, he made was about, obviously, and that's the title of his book, is The Tyranny of Silence, but I think what's forgotten is that almost, um, you know, the tyranny of the loudest, or and I won't mm. say the tyranny of the majority, because it's often actually fringe and small groups of people who maybe are efficient at organizing and mobilizing, who are able to punch above their weight and, and therefore silence others and prevent others from, from hearing um, certain information. I mean, you raise a number of highly important issues. I mean, as mm. you say, if we think about our constitutional right to free speech, it includes this right to receive um, information. That that's a fundamental part of the right. And that when you block someone from speaking, you're denying all these other people this right to receive the information. And often that is the forum where they, you know, are able to get it. There often aren't alternatives. So that's very important. The other one is if we move away from a, a rights language, but to a kind of, uh, a, a culture or a value language, that you want to create a culture where people are tolerant of each other, where we can stomach ideas that we don't like. So instead of having to say, I don't like what you're saying, therefore I'm going to make sure that, not that I'm just going to remove myself from the room, um, mm-hmm. I'm going to make sure no one gets to hear it, um, because I think that you're evil and, you know, the worst possible kind of person out there, and so no one should be allowed to debate you on your ideas, and you should be driven underground. Of course, the problem with driving, you know, ideas underground is that they, you, you remove this sort of safety valve of words, as you say, you know, and that they can be transformed into deeds. Mm. Um, so because you can't have this environment where you can debate stuff, what happens is that people then act out in actual amounts of violence. Whereas if you'd had some sort of civilized debate, people could have changed their minds. Um, they could have had an outlet. 
Um, so that's very exactly. dangerous. And it is interesting that this seems to be happening on campuses so broadly, you know, not just in South Africa, but abroad. I mean, there are so many speakers who get, um, you know, invited. Um, they get given a sort of, let's say, a contractual right to speak. And then when they arrive on campus, they're, you know, brutalized. Um, you have, you know, mobs burning down buildings, especially lately in the States. Um, you know, people having to speak in like underground bunkers, you know, yeah. and you're thinking this is an environment where people should be the most tolerant of different ideas. And the purpose of going to university is to sort of stretch your mind and encounter this range of, of ways of thinking. And people become so intolerant to it because yeah. they're so certain about their own rightness. Um, but it's a delicate balance, isn't it? Because at the same time, we also do want to recognize that people do have a right to protest a particular speaker. So mm. whilst we might, you know, admit, okay, a certain group is not invited to this particular speaker, but I still want to show my grievance at this person being allowed at this institution that I also share and have a, you know, I'm a stakeholder to, et cetera. So I think it's a fine balance when protest becomes either loud enough or large enough to then, in, in effect, prevent that speaker from, from, from talking. So Mill has this idea of mutually compatible freedoms. He says, yeah. I should have the freedom to swing my fist to the edge of your nose and no further. And so you might think that that happens in the free speech case. So if yeah. someone says, I don't like that you've invited Charles Taylor to come speak here or whoever it is that you just like, Marleyanopolis, and I want to register that protest and I have a free speech right to do so. Of course you do. Do that. Um, and do it in a way that allows the other people to have, have their talk. So you yeah. can demonstrate outside, you can hold, you know, counter lectures, you can do all that sort of stuff as long as both sides of get exercise freedom. Of course, in reality, that sometimes, I mean, I'm obviously not defending it in the many instances where I think it's been, you know, absolutely um, terrible that this has happened to, to, to speakers. But I think it may be something we can argue in theory, but in practice may be harder, especially when it's a mob that's kind of assembled in opposition against some someone and there's no sort of ringleader to say, hang on, whilst 10 of us can shout stop, 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 the moment we have a thousand, then it actually drowns out the voice of the speaker and he no longer is able to exercise, you know, Mm. That particular platform. So, yes, and I think that's that's worth realizing is that sometimes these issues aren't always so clear cut as free speech violations um, or not. I mean, you might think that there's different duties for universities um, as well. So if they've invited a speaker, that they have a duty to that speaker to provide them with a space where they can be heard. Um, and they might have a duty to their students to allow them to protest. And that providing separate spaces implies, you know, certain obligations. It might imply yeah. um, paying money as well for security to protect both sides. Um, you know, not, not all, not all freedoms come for free. And I think especially in cases where it's a university, where it's a space where you're meant to be exploring and debating ideas, that those higher obligations are there. We might not think that that applies in all cases though. Um, yeah. No, definitely. And I think perhaps where there is, um, you know, reluctance towards particular speaking. I think you might disagree because we've, we've in other, you know, areas had this conversation before, but about removing a platform before the speaker then arrives to speak. I think obviously a speaker not having an opportunity to speak once they've been invited is, is quite a different issue. But I think before that, that actual event, and it doesn't have to be a university, it could be, um, you know, a newspaper decision not to publish a particular piece. Mm. Um, I think there's always a, a discretionary right on the party that owns that platform to decide whether or not to, to, to really release that particular information or image or to allow that speaker to speak. But I think the key concern for me is that it must be upon considerations that are on the terms of that particular body and it cannot be coercive. So people from the outside who are now imposing their own political views and values on that um, platform. I think for me that's when it veers towards, towards censorship, that it wasn't this um, – 
voluntary and independent decision, but that there's some outside force, be it government or another interest group, that is now has pressurized and imposed their will on this on the on the publishing body. I think that's an excellent distinction. So you can think about Marlianopolis as a good example. It gets deplatformed in two different settings. So the one is mm-hmm. at Berkeley. You have a mob of Antifa students um, burning buildings and refusing the the lectures to take place. So you've got the external coercive stuff. And the other is at CPAC. So it's a conservative um, organization. And before um, – so they invite him. And before he speaks, they find out that he's involved in – he'd made comments that could be read as being pro-pedophilic. Um, mm-hmm. And they said, look, that doesn't um, resonate with our values anymore. Yeah. So I'm sorry, withdrawing our invitation. And so you might think that's not um, coercive. That's within their rights to say, well, I'm sorry, we extend this invitation on a certain premise, which is that you share our values. It turns out that you don't. Um, and you might think that there's no rights violation there. Well, yes, I do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so what about other things? Let's say we, we turn away from um, from speech. What about films and books? So South Africa's got this history of having censored a whole bunch of titles. So um, Black Beauty is one of these books that was famously banned um, in the 50s. Uh, when I was uh, growing up, um, you know, I had stars on the nipples uh, in Scope magazine, you know, because you couldn't trust the populace to see nipples. It would be, yeah. you know, too outrageous. Yeah. Um, you know, are there... Are there times when, you know, you ought to have a state censor in terms of what adults are able to view? Um, well, no, I mean, I think as much as possible, we want to protect the free flow of, of information. So I think it becomes difficult to monitor unless you're going to have, you know, kind of pre-classification of categories of um um, media that are deemed, you know, not for consumption for people that aren't adults, um, mm. etc. So I think that's that's um, problematic. But also, I in most laws, I have an inclination to want to punish the crime itself, so not to um, do too much to anticipate it. So it's not, you know, you you can't punish people for not, you know, classifying their contents, adult content, or not showing once they have shown it. If you have particular laws prohibiting, um, you know, for example. Um, child abuse, then you punish the child abuse, but you, um, there's no reason to pre-classify it before. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting case because you might think that if you've got a market for child abuse imagery, that that's creating incentives for child abusers, and so you might want to stem the market. Um, but you can imagine something like a literary work. So the Marquis decides 120 Days of Sodom is a very brutal pornographic work, right? Um, and he's been banned at various times in history. But mm. no person ever got harmed in the production of that book, right? It's you know just yeah. coming out of his mind. Uh, so do we do we want to sense any of that because we we find it distasteful, um, or we don't like people thinking those thoughts? Well, I hardly think having, you know, classifying content like, you know, child abuse would, would help because nobody in their right mind would submit that in any case in the first place to be classified. So I think either way, you're going to um, end up, um, you're going to end up um, identifying those who consume the content. Mm. Um, I think trying to identify it before it's released is pointless. There's no, it's, you know, it's illegal for a reason or it's um, taboo for a reason. No one is going to submit um, that kind of abuse of content. If we're dealing with the Marquis de Sade, it's a book that's been around for a long time. Can the state say, we know what this book's about, not in our country? Well, no, but that would be because I, I wouldn't agree. That's, I mean, I think that speaks to 
principles of, you know, whether that's acceptable content or not. I mean, I think it's problematic when people, for example, say child pornography that doesn't belong in the same area of content as just being a prude. Mm. You know, that's about child abuse and consent issues, um, etc. Mm. Whereas if you're talking about um, content like in the Marquis side, as far as I know, um, you know, as long as it's involving consenting adults, etc., there's no reason why, aside from prudish and conservative reasons, why that content should not be should not be viewed. Well, it's a, it's a book that definitely depicts lots of non-consensual sexual acts. Um, but there's no real person that ever gets violated because it's well, you know, I think just that's the key paper. because it's, it then would then speak to um, other areas of sexual preferences or fantasies such as BDSM where um, it may not depict consent, but there definitely is an initial point of consent. Sure, sure. And I think, that. and I would feel the same way even for um, child um, sort of such, uh, sexual content that involved um, adults who look like children. So you know, adults and pigtails and school uniform because they aren't in fact children. I, I think the reality of the matter um, is, is important. So what you care about is. Did someone get harmed in the production well, of exactly. this material? Yes. You know, if not, then you won't allow it. What's yes. interesting is so uh, perception or the sense of it as a material. Mm. So in the eighties, there was this big crusade against pornography, um, and uh, there were two famous feminists who sort of drafted up legislation in Canada: Andrea Dworkin and Catherine McKinnon. Mm. Um, and they banned a whole bunch of um, materials that they thought would be, you know, that were anti anti woman and you know, um, not in line with feminist values and were pornographic. And what happened was, as soon as the law was passed, their own books were banned. You know that often the censor authority, you know, acts in a very different way. And they found that also they tended to focus on gay material. Um, um, so your law might look even-handed, but in its application, not necessarily. And so there are all these dangers that come along with censorship. Um, but I think we've had a very productive conversation regarding what the true parameters are of free speech, why it's valuable, and why we ought to at least be very wary of intrusions while accepting that, of course, there are times when it's okay to censor speech and specifically when they lead to genuine harms. Thanks from me, Cecilia Koch from the Friedrich Naumann Foundation for Freedom, for joining us for this episode of Freedom Versus. We hope you found it thought-provoking. And thanks to Mtoba Chapi for the editing, visuals and graphics, and Greg Cohen for the audio. Please subscribe to our podcast and our YouTube channel, Freedom Versus. That's two words, and versus is spelled V-E-R-S-U-S. There, you can watch the discussions between Gwen and Mark. Our YouTube channel also features additional content. Enjoy! Cliffcentral.com